with songs they have sung for a thousand years. The hills fill my heart with the sound of music. My heart wants to sing every song it hears. My heart wants to beat like the wings of the birds that rise from the lake to wants to sigh like a chime that flies from a church on a breeze to laugh like a brook when it trips and falls over stones on its way to sing through the night like a lark who is The unmistakable voice there of Julie Andrews singing the opening title number from The Sound of Music with music by Richard Rogers and lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein II. A very warm welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Fine Music Radio 101.3 FM and to the fifth installment of Great Interpreters Goes Broadway. My name is Adrian Fuchs, your host for this series in which we pay tribute to the great leading ladies of the musical theatre stage. Over the course of the last few weeks, we've paid tribute to such great Broadway dames as Ethel Merman, Mary Martin, Elaine Stretch, and last week, Angela Lansbury. Still in store in coming weeks are programs on Bernadette Peters, Elaine Page, and finally on Friday, July 24th, Patti Lepone. Tonight's great interpreter is arguably the most well-known and loved leading lady of them all, Julie Andrews adored the world over for her roles as Mary Poppins and Maria in The Sound of Music, Andrews's voice, at its peak, was silvery, pure, clear as a bell and instantly recognizable, and it continues to beguile generations of children and adults to this day, on screen and in recordings. And even though she hasn't worked that much on Broadway, Andrews serves, as David Cote noted, as an icon for the old-fashioned joys of Rogers and Hammerstein and Lerner and Lowe. Julie Andrews's massive successes in Mary Poppins and The Sound of Music coalesced in the public mind the character of a sweet-voiced Englishwoman ready to soothe childish traumas by crooning about a spoonful of sugar or my favourite things. Following these roles, she spent decades alternately conforming to and rebelling against the prim and proper wholesome image they had bestowed upon her. But if Andrews represented in the public eye a wholesome, prim and proper English dame, she had, through hard work, perfectionism and determination, overcome many obstacles on her path. 
from an impoverished childhood in London to Broadway legend. Many sources have noted that she is a formidable character, far removed from the sugary roles she plays. Not for nothing was Andrews known to some in Tinseltown as the Iron Butterfly and to others as the nun with a switchblade. Before we continue with tonight's show, a reminder as always that if you missed any of the previous programs in the Great Interpreters Goes Broadway series, you can listen to them again on my website on and off the record at www.onandofftherecord.com That's www.onandofftherecord.com You can also use iTunes to download a podcast of tonight's show. And if you have any questions, feedback or comments about tonight's program, please feel free to contact me via email or Facebook as I'm not in the studio to take your calls. The email address at which you can reach me is adrian at onandofftherecord.com But now, on with tonight's show. Here is I Could Have Danced All Night from Lerner and Lowe's My Fair Lady, a musical that became inextricably linked with Andrews. Bed, bed, I couldn't go to bed. My head's too light to try to set it down. Sleep, sleep, I couldn't sleep tonight. Not for all the jewels in the crown. I could have danced all night. I could have danced all night. And still have begged for more. I could have spread my wings and done a thousand things. Never know what made it so exciting. Why all at once my heart took flight. I only know when he began to dance with me, I could have danced, danced, danced all night. To be in bed, I could have died out all night. 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 I i 
Elizabeth Wells was born on October 1st, 1935 in Walton-on-Thames in Surrey, England, into a broken home. Her mother, Barbara Ward Wells, a pianist, was married at the time to Edward Charles Wells, but Andrews was conceived as a result of an affair her mother had with an unnamed family friend, a fact that was not publicly disclosed until her 2008 autobiography. Barbara and Edward's marriage was not a happy one, and when Andrews was four, her mother left her and her father to live with the Canadian tenor Ted Andrews, whom she accompanied on stage. Andrews' parents divorced when she was eight, and eventually she went to live with her mother and her stepfather, while her brother, Johnny, stayed with Edward Wells. The Andrews family braved wartime food rationing and German bombs, poverty and drink. They were, as Andrews later recalled, very poor, living in a series of squalid digs in a bad slum area of London, sleeping in a room where rats crept along the pipes, and having her scalp scrubbed and rinsed with vinegar to remove lice. That was a very bleak period in my life, Andrews later recalled. In an attempt to bond with his new stepdaughter, Ted Andrews started giving Andrews singing lessons, and to his amazement discovered that she had a freak four-octave voice. A throat specialist also found that she had an almost adult larynx. My stepfather was very smart, noted Andrews, in that he knew he didn't have the ability to teach, and because it was such a very young voice, but such a sort of oddly powerful one, he knew that he had to put me in good hands. And so he took me to his teacher, Lillian Stiles Allen, who was a very fine dramatic soprano. She had an enormous influence on me, Julie Andrews later said of Stiles Allen, adding, She was like a mother. In her memoir, Julie Andrews, My Star Pupil, Stiles Allen recalls how she was amazed at the range, accuracy, and tone of Andrews's voice. According to Andrews, Stiles Allen was sure that I could do Mozart and Rossini, but, to be honest, I never was. My voice was extremely high and thin, and though clean and clear, it never had the necessary guts and weight for opera. Here is Andrews in a 2015 interview with Alec Baldwin, recorded for WNYC New York Public Radio. When I was about seven, my mother had remarried and my stepfather was a fine tenor. My school had closed due to the escalation of World War II, and everything was shut down, and I would imagine that partly because I was underfoot a lot in home, but secondly, maybe in an attempt to get a little closer to this new stepdaughter that was not very fond of him, he decided to just for no reason at all just give me some singing lessons. And to my mother and stepfather's surprise, I had this freak, very strong, very, very huge 
ranged voice. It was very thin and white, but I could do all the histrionics. I could do anything. I hated those singing lessons because it was with the stepfather. With him? With him. He was your instructor? Well, he gave me some scales and a few things like that, but very quickly after that, he found a phenomenal teacher, a lady that was a dramatic soprano who was as wide as she was short and was as loving and decent and until she died, which was in her, somewhere in her 90s, had the most beautiful pitched voice and could still sing. And she gave me the foundation that, that uh, in other words, hang on to your words, um, enunciate, because they'll pull the song through for you and all of that. And was she someone who you maintained any kind of contact with oh, if yes. you went on to become... Oh, yes. No, no, she was my teacher for most of her remaining life. I've worked with other people since, but that lady was, oh, my teacher. She prepared me for uh, My Fair Lady and um, the so foundation. She became successful. Yes, oh, and, she and saw that, yeah. There. She, she saw that. She always wished, I think, that I could become an... Um, a light opera singer or a, or an opera singer, and I knew, in spite of her ambition for me, that I didn't have the voice for it. It was too light a voice, and I, as I say, it was a little white in sound. So I didn't have the chops for uh, opera, maybe light opera, and I have recorded a couple of old recordings of, like, um, Rosemary, and I've sung things from The Merry Widow and stuff like that. But when the world opened up, because I was in musicals, I realized that I'd found the exact weight for my voice, that I'd found the right thing. At the age of 10, Andrews began singing with her mother and stepfather, whose last name she legally adopted in their music hall vaudeville act. She would stand on a beer crate in order to sing into the microphone, sometimes a solo or as a duet with her stepfather, while her mother played the piano. When your mother and your stepfather brought you into their vaudeville act, um, who were you in the act? Like, what was your role? What kind of stuff did you sing? <laughs> uh, I think I started doing this. Um, my father began to give me singing lessons when I was about seven years old. My stepfather began to give me singing lessons when I was about seven years old. He was a fine singer, and my mother was a wonderful pianist in my youth. She was a, a really good concert pianist, and she and my stepfather formed this vaudeville act, which became pretty successful all around England and um, on the boards and uh, also on radio, which was very big in those days. And he began giving me singing lessons at the age of about seven and was so surprised to discover that I had a, you know, unusually powerful um, adult larynx. Um, he very quickly realized that probably would be a smart thing to give me over to a fine singing teacher. And uh, uh, that good lady was my teacher until the day she died at age 90-something or other. So for many, many decades she was my teacher. And she taught well and gave me a great technique. Um, so when I went on the boards with my parents for the first time, I was about nine, and um, my stepfather who was a good salesman, too. He he went out and spoke with the front-of-house manager of whatever town, whatever theatre they were playing in, whatever town they were, and um, asked permission to bring their young daughter onto the stage that night. And um, 
he announced to the audience that he had a surprise for the audience that um, their his and my mother's young daughter were um, was traveling with them for the holidays or something like that, and uh, they wanted to invite me on the stage to sing a duet, and I sang a duet with my uh, stepfather, and I was so small that they put me on a sort of um, wooden beer crate, I think, uh, or a bottle crate anyway, uh, to reach the microphone beside him. And uh, we belted out a, a song called Come to the Fair, which was a duet, and it went down pretty well, and I seemed to enjoy it, and the audience seemed to love it, so uh, it, things progressed from there. It's so interesting that on the one hand, you're studying you, you're getting this great classical training with your teacher, singing Handel, and at the same time, you're performing in your parents' vaudeville act. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, nice mix. my gimmick and my stock in trade in those days was to belt out somewhat, you know, cut and bastardized versions of the great arias. I sang um, Caranome from Rigoletto. I sang um, uh, the... the, the um, um, oh, I can't even remember now. Um, the great aria from Traviata... Um, um, Sempre Libre, I'm sorry, I couldn't remember the name for a second. And my great stock in trade was the um, Polonaise from the opera Mignon. And uh, that had a phenomenally high note at the end of it and uh, usually brought the house down. Andrew's there in a 2008 interview with Terry Gross, recorded for WHYY National Public Radio. On October 22nd, 1947, Andrews, who was only 12 years old, made her professional solo debut at the London Hippodrome as part of a musical review called Starlight Roof, after Val Parnell, the London theatrical impresario, had heard her sing the aria Je suis Titania from Thomas's Mignot on a BBC radio broadcast. Sandy Wilson, the composer of The Boyfriend, the musical that provided Andrews with her Broadway debut and first major success, was there that October evening in 1947 and later recalled. It was a typically lavish review of the period, and I remember very little about it, apart from an astonishing moment when a little girl, wearing a pretty frock and rather large white shoes, appeared in a spotlight, and in a pure, soaring soprano which filled that enormous theatre, sang the Polonaise from Mignot. Ladies and gentlemen, I have great pleasure in introducing to you our youngest soprano from Starlight Roof, Julie Andrews. Well, Julie, is this the first time you've ever made a gramophone record? Oh, yes. Is it your first record, too? No, no, not exactly, no. How old are you? I am 12. How old are you? Uh, um, I think I'd better ask the questions. What are you going to sing for us? I'd like to sing the Polonaise from me. Oh, lovely. Just the kind of junk I like.
a 12-year-old Julie Andrews singing Je suis Titania or the Polonaise from Ambrose Tomas's Mignot in that remarkable live recording. Andrews played the Hippodrome for one year and came to be known as the Prodigy with Pigtails and later Britain's youngest prima donna. On November 1st, 1948, Andrews, aged 13, became the youngest solo performer yet in a Royal Command variety performance, singing God Save the King in front of members of King George VI's family, including Queen Elizabeth, the Princess Elizabeth, and her future husband, Prince Philip. Numerous radio and television appearances followed, with Andrews making her television debut on the BBC programme Radio Olympia Showtime on 8th of October 1949. Because of these appearances, her earnings were soon helping to support the entire family. Meanwhile, Andrews' stepfather, Ted Andrews, was descending into alcoholism. Here is an extract from a 2008 interview with Cherry Gross, recorded for WHYY National Public Radio. Your stepfather beat your brother with a cane. You had your own run-in with your stepfather. Twice he came into your bedroom, climbed into your bed, and told you... Well, he he didn't climb into my bed, but he certainly made an advance. Um, Thank God, at that point, he did not climb into my bed, and... um, but, it, but, uh, it, but he told you that you needed to be taught how to kiss? Yes, he did. That was, um, uh, But he was not in my bed, thank God. <laughs> that would have been very difficult. But I was able to... Um, you have to remember, he was an alcoholic, and, and there were days when he wasn't an alcoholic, and he did a lot of things to, um, to further my career, to try to help me in many ways. But, of course, because he was a stepfather, because he was seemingly a dangerous man in, in, in the family present... I didn't like him that much, particularly not at first. And uh, thank God he was decent enough somewhere to uh, pull back. And I I was only abused in that he did try to kiss me and he would have probably um, come into bed. But I had a lock put on the door and a few things like that. And it only happened twice, mercifully. How did you get him out of your room? I kind of joshed him. Um, uh, you know, thank you. Now, come on. Let's let's. Uh, it's time that I get to bed. And I don't know what I said really, but I do know that there was a kind of pushing and a, and a gentle shoving. And um, I didn't want to make waves. I know that I wanted to just get him out of the room and climb into the safety of my bed and face the wall, so to speak. You told your aunt about this, and you assume that she told your yeah, mother. Yes, she lived on our property, and, and my mother was away. How come you told your aunt? Some people would keep that, would be like so afraid that they would just keep it a secret from anybody and carry the burden of the secret for decades. Well, I, I wasn't threatened um, in that sense. He didn't say, don't tell anybody. He didn't say, you'll be in trouble if you do. It was none of that. I mean, he was drunk and... Um, uh, it was just a bad moment in his life and in mine, but um, I, th- thank God, had enough sense to say, Auntie, what do I do about this? Andrews appeared in the West End at the London Casino, where she played one year each as Princess Badrul Badur in Aladdin and the Egg in Humpty Dumpty. She also appeared on provincial stages in pantomimes such as Jack and the Beanstalk and Little Red Riding Hood and starred as the lead in Cinderella. It was during her run in Cinderella that two American producers, 
Cy Feuer and Ernest Martin came to see the show. They were planning on taking their highly successful Sandy Wilson West End musical The Boyfriend to Broadway and were so impressed with Andrews that they offered her the part of Polly Brown, an earnest young British flapper on Broadway. After much indecision, Andrews accepted their offer. I was um, 18, I was 19 the day after we opened on Broadway. And um, it's the first time I'd ever really been away from my family for that, for that potential length of time. And suddenly I got so panicked about it. And um, I called in my dad, my real dad, and I said, Oh, God, Daddy, they're asking me to go for two years. What should I do? What should I do? I don't think I could be away from the family for that long. And he said, well, chick, it could run two weeks or two months. It might not be two years. And it would open up your head to such an extent. I think you should do it. I asked him later in life whether that was a hard thing to do. He said it was one of the hardest things to say go, to just throw me into the bigger pond, so to speak, and hope that I would swim. And, of course, uh, because Dad said it. Oh, he said a wonderful thing. He said... When I said, but how will I know what to do? He said, your own good brain will tell you what to do when the time comes, which was hugely flattering and kind of implied that he thought I could cope. Um, and so I took my courage in both hands and said, I would like to accept this contract, but I will not go for longer than one year. And lo and behold, uh, Messrs. Fewer and Martin said, fine. And I was the only one of the company that had a one-year contract. So off I went to Broadway for a year of incredible uh, learning and education. And that clip was taken from a 2004 interview recorded for the Academy of Achievement. And so it happened that on September 30th, 1954, on the eve of her 19th birthday, Julie Andrews made her Broadway debut as Polly Brown in The Boyfriend. To the critics, she was the standout performer in the show. John Beaufort asserted in the Christian Science Monitor that the young singer's interpretation of the part was both comic and adorable, and that her solemnly pretty ingenueness was a triumph of controlled exaggeration. Walcott Gibbs in The New Yorker agreed, calling Andrews the season's dramatic highlight. Two weeks before her boyfriend contract was to expire, Andrews was asked to audition for the role of Eliza Doolittle in the Alan J. Lerner Frederick Lowe musical My Fair Lady on Broadway, a role that incidentally had been turned down by Mary Martin, who was featured earlier in this series. Here is Andrews in a 2004 interview recorded for the Academy of Achievement. I sang for Lerner and Lowe first and uh, belted out my my audition song and a couple of others, and then went in to start reading from the original Pygmalion because the script wasn't quite finished. And I knew that I was hopelessly out of my depth. Um, uh, you have to remember, I was raised in vaudeville. I wasn't even on the right side of the tracks. I wasn't in legit theater at all. I had never done a play um, it, other than this very, very light piece called The Boyfriend. And... Um, uh, so I really knew from nothing, and uh, I knew that I understood Eliza in some way, but I was hugely shy, hugely insecure, and I wondered if anybody would know 
that there was something inside that that they could use if they knew how to get it out for me. Andrews, who was 20 years old at the time, got the part, appearing opposite the Henry Higgins of Rex Harrison. Initially, some members of the cast and creative team, including Harrison and director Moss Hart, had serious doubts about Andrews' ability to play Eliza Doolittle. She had a rough start in the rehearsal process as she struggled with the characterization and the character's cockney accent. Hart, exasperated during rehearsals, reportedly said to his wife, the actress and singer Kitty Carlyle, Is Andrews as bad as I think she is? Kitty replied, She's worse. Harrison too was openly disdainful about his co-star's dramatic abilities and wanted Andrews replaced. He was reported to have said at one point, If that girl is here on Monday giving the same performance, I am out of the show. I got the feeling from Rex's cold and ungenerous attitude, noted Andrews, that I wasn't making inroads with him, and that he was, quite rightly, making a stink about this silly little English girl who couldn't manage the role. I was absolutely atrocious at all the early readings, and poor Rex Harrison wondered what on earth he'd been landed with, this young girl that could sing and had not a clue how to... um, get into the arc of a character or I mean I had no idea how to develop a character at all and uh, uh, he intimidated me tremendously because he was so so good he was also very very nervous and very very um, demanding and selfish because he was scared to death because he'd never sung before so I knew I could pull off all the singing stuff and he for sure knew he could pull off all the dialogue and and uh, uh, but he wasn't about to give anybody else any time. And I know that Stanley Holloway, who played Doolittle, uh, also had problems and was waiting for his sort of um, fleshing out of the character. And Moss took me for a long weekend and dismissed the entire company and worked with me in the most brilliant way. It was a little bit like going to the dentist. You knew it was going to be very painful, but you... If you could stick it out, maybe with luck, you'd come out feeling a heck of a lot better. And that's what Moss did for me. It was painful. And he said, we have no time for embarrassment. We have no time for um, anything but the blunt truth. And he shaped, pushed, cajoled, wheedled, loved me, yelled at me, uh, just helped me become... Eliza Doolittle, and although by the following Monday, I'm sure I retreated 50%, I had gained 50%, and uh, it gave me the foundation from which to really start working on the role, and I played My Fair Lady for three and a half years. Andrew's there talking about the rehearsal process of My Fair Lady, taken from a 2004 interview recorded for the Academy of Achievement. As Andrews recalls in her memoir, when Hart finished his work with her, his wife asked how it went. Oh, she'll be fine, Moss replied wearily. She has that terrible British strength that makes you wonder how they ever lost India. Andrews's hard work and persistence paid off. By the time the show opened on March 15, 1956, critics praised her portrayal of Eliza Doolittle, and she went on to receive a Tony Award nomination and a New York Drama Critics Award for Best Actress in a Musical. Here is Andrus's rendition of Show Me from My Fair Lady, 
taken from the original Broadway cast recording of the show. Speak and the world is full of singing And I'm winging higher than the birds Touch and my heart begins to crumble The heavens tumble, darling, and I... Words, 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 I'm so sick of words I get words only through first from him, now from you Is that all you blighters can do? version of George Bernard Shaw's Pygmalion. My Fair Lady's glorious score includes such well-known songs as Just You Wait Henry Higgins, On the Street Where You Live, Get Me to the Church on Time, I've Grown Accustomed to Her Face, and I Could Have Danced All Night, which we heard earlier in tonight's program. One of the many other highlights of the score is of course Wouldn't It Be Lovely, a song that became a calling card for Andrews. It's rather dull in town, I think I'll take me to Paris. Mm. The missus wants to open up the castle in Capri. Mm. Me doctor recommends a quiet summer by the sea.
My Fair Lady turned out to be a momentous hit. With 2,717 performances, it went on to set a record for the longest-running Broadway musical up to that time. It played havoc with me physically, because three and a half years is a very long time, Andrews later noted. It was like a long tunnel. I did get a break between England and America, but it wasn't that long. It was a discipline, and when I finished, I asked myself, well now, what to do with my life? I had no life. Because in a way it was like becoming a nun or just disappearing into this long tunnel. Wednesdays always seemed very black to me. Black Wednesday was the day that you had two shows and got up feeling awful on Thursday and had to pull yourself up only to be slammed back into the Saturday matinee again because they were exhausting. It was one of the hardest roles, my fair lady, I don't think I know of any of the Eliza Doolittles that truly survived vocally or physically. It took its toll on all of them. You have to be able to sustain the yelling and screaming and the Cockney accent and the rage that comes in the first two or three songs and then pure, pure singing in things like I could have danced all night. It's a big dramatic role, probably one of the best roles for a lady in musical theatre. That and perhaps Gypsy. Alan Lerner once said that he felt that a long run in a very good role was more help to a performer than doing repertory with lots and lots of short roles. You might become very facile, but what I did was learn what did get a laugh, what didn't get a laugh, and why I didn't get it if I didn't get it, what the difference was uh, in terms of um, it raining outside or snowing or an audience that was coughing their hearts out or one that was too hot in the uh, seasons when your leading man has a headache or when you have a voice that's hanging on by a thread. I think I learned in My Fair Lady everything that set me up in later years uh, in good stead because um, I really learned how to preserve and take care of myself and... I was learning on my feet every single performance. And that interview clip was taken from a 2004 interview recorded for the Academy of Achievement. During her run in My Fair Lady, Andrews was approached by composer Richard Rogers and lyricist Oscar Hammerstein II to star in a television musical version of Cinderella, which was broadcast live on CBS on March 31, 1957 and attracted an estimated 107 million viewers. Though it was originally broadcast in color, only a black-and-white kinescope remains, which has been released on DVD. 
Let's listen to In My Own Little Corner from Cinderella as sung by Julie Andrews with music by Richard Rogers and lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein II. In January 1958, 
Andrews released her debut solo album, The Lass with the Delicate Air, a collection of British folk songs, and followed it with an LP of standards, Julie Andrews Sings, and a studio cast recording of the operetta Rosemary later that same year. Andrews, Harrison, Coote and Holloway then went on to reprise their roles in the original London production of My Fair Lady, which opened on April 30, 1958 at the Theatre Royal Drury Lane, where it subsequently ran for five and a half years. On May 10, 1959, during her run of My Fair Lady in London, Andrews married her childhood sweetheart, the set designer Tony Walton, of whom she had once said, We were as much like brother and sister as anything else. Of their wedding, she wrote, To know that I was marrying my dearest friend was a great comfort, a safe, sure feeling. But, on their honeymoon in Hollywood, Andrews had a first sighting of the man who was to supplant Walton in her life. I remember seeing Jack Lemmon talking to the director, Blake Edwards, the latter seeming handsome and charismatic, if perhaps a trifle arrogant, she recalled. Andrews's next Broadway musical in 1960 was Lerner and Lowe's Camelot, in which she appeared as Queen Guinevere opposite Richard Burton's King Arthur. Her performance brought her another Tony Award nomination, though she was passed over for the film version of Camelot in favour of actress Vanessa Redgrave. Let's listen now to I Loved You Once in Silence from Camelot, with music by Frederick Lowe and lyrics by Alan J. Lerner.
In June 1961, Andrews cut her third solo album, Broadway's Fair Julie, an LP of show tunes released in December on the Columbia label. Despite her critically acclaimed stage performances and lobbying from Lerner himself, Andrews was passed over for the 1964 film version of My Fair Lady in favour of actress Audrey Hepburn. According to reports, Film studio head Jack Warner decided Andrews lacked sufficient name recognition for her to be cast in the film version of My Fair Lady. As Warner later recalled, the decision was an easy one. In my business, I have to know who brings people and their money to a cinema box office. Audrey Hepburn had never made a financial flop, he noted. Here is Andrews in an interview with Terry Gross, recorded in 2008 for WHYY National Public Radio. Now, when My Fair Lady was adapted into a film, you didn't get the part. I don't know if you wanted it or not, but it well, went, went to Audrey. There's no doubt about the fact that I would have loved to have played Eliza on film, but I really, at the time, understood the choice uh, to not go with an unknown because although I was fairly well known on Broadway, but I was only really just making my name. Um, uh, certainly, I wasn't known in the world or in the in the in the movie industry. And in those days, um, it you know it, it was a, a star was required, and uh, Audrey uh, was asked to do the role. And we became great friends, uh, um, Audrey Hepburn and I. Good. And uh, she said to me one day, "Oh, Julie, you should have done it, but I didn't have the guts to turn it down." which was lovely and charming of her. And I completely understood why she was asked to do it. And, and she ended up being dubbed by Marnie Nixon. Now, when... Her, vo- her singing voice, Her singing yes. voice, her singing voice. On the other hand, when The Sound of Music was adapted from stage to film, Mary Martin didn't get cast in the movie. You got, nope, so you got you the go. movie role. Yeah, so did, did you feel bad about Mary Martin? <laughs> I did. Um, for a for a, just for a moment, Terry. <laughs> yes, I did think. Oh my! I wonder how she feels about this. But um, but for whatever reason, um, uh, she had done it on stage just as I had done my Fair Lady. She probably felt pretty bad too. As fate would have it, though, Andrews's losing out on the film version of My Fair Lady ended up proving entirely fortuitous as Walt Disney was preparing plans for a film based on a series of eight children's books written by P.L. Travers about Mary Poppins, the British nanny who is practically perfect in every way. When Camelot's over, where do you go? Uh, To um, um, Hollywood. Because? Because Walt Disney came to see... I mean, in between I did television shows and my wonderful fun shows with Carol Burnett and things like that. But basically, chronologically, um, Walt Disney was advised to come and see Camelot because there was a girl in it that might be good for Mary Poppins, none of which I knew. And he came backstage to say hello. 
I just thought he was being very civil, that he was going to say hello to me and to Richard, and that would be that. And, you know, everybody knew Walt Disney was in the audience. But he came and he chatted in my dressing room with me and with Tony Walton, my then-husband. And he said, I wonder how you'd feel if you came out to um, Hollywood, you know, to hear the songs and see the drawings that we've done, storyboarding, as they called it, mm-hmm. for um, Mary Poppins. And with huge um, regret, I said, oh, Mr. Disney, I, I would love to, but I have to tell you that I'm three months pregnant. And he said, well, that's all right. We'll wait. And, of course, I did not know that pre-production and all of those, I mean, it's endless in a fairly big movie, as you know. So we went on out. Disney was delightful and spoiled us both wonderfully. Hearing the songs for Mary Poppins, it instantly evoked those vaudeville days, the rum-ti-tum kind of quality of a jolly holiday. Familiar, and familiar to you. Very, and I knew I could embrace it. You go out there and you start shooting when? Your daughter's how old? Uh, well, she's only like um, three or four months old when yeah. we began rehearsals. and we In California. In California, on the back lot of the Disney... Who directs the film? Um, Robert Stevenson, and one of the good, true uh, Disney... Uh, uh, stable of directors. Stable of directors. That's and, a very and, and, nice and, way to put and, it. And how did he compare to your other experiences in the theater? Well, it was film. Yeah, very uh, technical. Very different. And he taught me a great deal. He was very patient. And and I quickly, you know, I very soon realized the patience that's needed to make a movie. And you'd sit around for ages, particularly with Mary Poppins, because all of those special effects took such a long time to set up, you know. And did you begin, as, as many people do, I think, who have the success you've had, did you begin to, uh, you know, kind of feel your way toward your own relationship with the camera? Yes. Well, at first I was very well guided and very well looked after. And I always have been, to be truthful. Uh, Robert Wise was was a great mentor in that respect. But the man who taught me about lenses, and I wish I had paid even more attention, a dumb girl that I was at the time, was Hitchcock. I said, you know, I know very little about lenses in my British, vague, innocent way, very green. And he said, you don't know about lenses and you're a woman. Come with me. <laughs> and he spent oh, 40 minutes on, on drawing and showing me that this, would, uh, this lens would make my nose grow much longer than it should and that a lady should never be shot with anything but a whatever 40, it was. Whatever. Yeah, that's right. Well, 35 maybe, you know, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Now, when you, so you do Mary Poppins. How long did it take? You were in Los Angeles for months and months? Quite a long time. And then there's all the post-production and looping and things like that. But then very... Was Dick always the person cast in the film? Yes. He was always going to be. Because uh, he was a big star then. Huge. Right. Yes, yeah. And dear. Just darling. Sure. And because, because it had that vaudeville thing, we were both able to literally kind of kick up our heels and have fun together. And uh, um, he knew his accent was just appalling sure. as a cockney. But I could empathize with that because mine was when I went out to do Fair Lady. And that interview, conducted by Alec Baldwin, was recorded in 2015 for WNYC New York Public Radio. The score of Mary Poppins, composed by the brothers Richard and Robert Sherman, introduced such timeless classics as A Spoonful of Sugar, Chim Chimarie, Feed the Birds, and Let's Go Fly a Kite.
And who can forget the infectious charm of supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, a word that became so embedded in popular culture that it was added to the Oxford English Dictionary in 1984. Mary Poppins became one of the biggest box office draws in Disney history and bestowed on Andrews the 1964 Academy Award for Best Actress. She remains to this day the only actress ever to have been nominated for and won the Best Actress Oscar for a Disney movie. Andrews was also awarded the 1964 Golden Globe Award for Best Actress, Motion Picture, Musical or Comedy for her work on Mary Poppins, beating out Audrey Hepburn who was nominated for My Fair Lady. As a measure of sweet revenge, as Richard Sherman put it, Andrews closed her acceptance speech at the Golden Globes by saying, And finally my thanks to a man who made a wonderful movie and who made all this possible in the first place, Mr. Jack Warner. For the Best Actress in a Musical or Comedy, the nominees are... At the Golden Globe Awards in February 1965, Julie Andrews was nominated for Mary Poppins, opposite Audrey Hepburn for My Fair Lady. And suddenly, I don't know how it came about, maybe Bill Walsh brought it up, but we suddenly realised that if, if Jack Warner had asked me to do My Fair Lady, which I missed out on, I would never have been able to do Mary Poppins. The winner is Julie Andrews, Mary Poppins. Thank you very much for this lovely honour. It's a wonderful memento of a very, very happy time. And... I took an enormous gulp and said, Finally, my thanks to a man who made a wonderful movie and who made all this possible in the first place, Mr. Jack Warner. 
everybody screamed. It was like a thunderous scream, and everyone's laughing. Including Mr. Warner, so I was home and safe. And that was her little sweet revenge, I think. It was great. Here now is A Spoonful of Sugar from Mary Poppins, sung by Julie Andrews, of course, and taken from the 1964 original motion picture soundtrack. In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. You find the fun, and snap! The job's a game. And every task you undertake becomes a piece of cake, a lark, a spree. It's very clear to see that a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, the medicine go down, medicine go down. Just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down in a most delightful way. A robin feathering his nest has very little time to rest while gathering his bits of twine and twig. Though quite intent in his pursuit, he has a merry tune to toot. He knows a song will move the job
That will be quite sufficient. Hats and coats, please. It's time for our outing in the park. I don't want an outing. I want to tidy up the nursery again. Enough is as good as a feast. Come along, please. Let me look at you. Well, you're not as well turned out as I'd like. Still, this time, this time, it's spot. And off we go. For a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. The medicine go down. Medicine go down. Just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. In the most delightful In 1964, Andrew starred opposite James Garner in The Americanization of Emily, for which he was nominated for the BAFTA Award for Best British Actress in a Leading Role. A comedy-drama war film set in London during World War II, Andrews has described it as her favourite film role. In December 1962, 20th Century Fox president Richard Zanuck hired Ernest Lehman to write the screenplay for a film adaptation of Rodgers and Hammerstein's 1959 stage musical The Sound of Music, which was based on the memoir The Story of the Trapp Family Singers by Maria von Trapp. Lehman transformed a work designed for the stage into a film that could use the camera to emphasize action and mood and open up the story to the beautiful locations of Salzburg and the Austrian Alps. Lehman's first and only choice for Maria was Julie Andrews. When director Robert Wise joined the project, he made a list of his choices for the role, which included Andrews as his first choice, but also Grace Kelly and Shirley Jones. Wise and Lehman went to Disney Studios to view footage from Mary Poppins, which had not yet been released. A few minutes into the film, Wise told Lehman, Let's go sign this girl before somebody else sees this film and grabs her. Andrews had some initial reservations about The Sound of Music, mainly because she felt that the theatrical version and story could be very saccharine. But when she learned that her concerns were shared by Wise and Lemon, she signed on. Here is Andrews in a 2004 interview for the Academy of Achievement. When I was first asked if I would like to do Sound of Music... Um, I was very thrilled to be asked and very glad that I was going to do the movie but was a little careful about um, certain aspects of it because, because it's, it was tremendously saccharine on Broadway particularly and um, I, it, it seemed to me that if we weren't careful with, with the real scenery and with uh, um, uh, everything else that was going to it, it could be horribly sugary. And I certainly made every effort to take some of the, to make it more astringent. And the great Christopher Plummer contributed so much in that respect. It was his performance that was the glue, the, the, the vinegar that, that held the film together. And then Robert Wise, who was again an adorable man, our director, and he um, taught me a great deal about filmmaking because 
um, Mary Poppins was the first film I ever made, and then I made one called um, The Americanization of Emily. But by the time I got to uh, Sound of Music, I was probably getting full of a lot of little tricks and things that I didn't know I was doing. And Bob said, don't do that, don't do that, do that. And um, I really learned a little bit more about filmmaking at that time. Mary Poppins and The Sound of Music, which followed Mary Poppins by six months, established Andrews as a specialist in wholesome family entertainment. As Clive Hershorn put it in his 1981 book, The Hollywood Musical, The Sound of Music was accused of mawkish sentimentality by many critics, but it was Andrews's extraordinarily assured and appealing central performance that was largely responsible for the film's enormous success. Let me ask you about what might be the most famous shot from the film, which is used on advertising posters. And it's a picture of you while singing The Sound of Music with your arms out, um, (laughs) twirling around (laughs) alone in the mountains. (laughs) That's right, in the very, very cold, rainy, wet mountains. Talk about about that shot. Oh, um, well, that shot, the bulk of that shot was filmed from a helicopter. And I would start at one end of this long field, uh, and the helicopter would start at the other end of the field, and we would come towards each other. The very brave cameraman was hanging out of the side of the helicopter where the door would normally be, strapped in with a camera attached to his chest, and uh, the helicopter sort of came at me sideways, rather sort of crab-like, edging its way towards me. Um, as I walked towards it and executed that famous, now famous turn just before singing. And we did that shot many times to be sure that the focus was right and that everything about it was right. Um, But the trouble was that once that shot had been completed and we each went back to our own respective ends of the field to start again, the downdraft from the helicopter circling around me dashed me off my feet and into the grass. Uh, it was so strong. Now, this is fine for, you know, one or two takes, but after about four or five takes, I began to get quite angry about it and uh, thought, you know, there must be a way that I don't have to be leveled every time we finish this shot. So I signaled to the pilot to please make a wider circle around me. And all I got was a thumbs up and, you know, great, I think we got it, but let's do it one more time. And I bit the dust and I sort of spat mud and hay and everything else for for every single take of that particular shot. That's so great because the story behind the shot is so different than the shot itself. Yes. <laughs> you know? uh, yeah. It's like you're suffering <laughs> to <laughs> do it. a lot of things about The Sound of Music that had that, though. I mean, the, the weather was... Uh, not great uh, in the mountains particularly and it rained a great deal of the time and we we would sit under tarpaulins and and manage to get through a day with sometimes just 30 seconds of film footage and uh, it was cold and it was damp but the clouds and their strength and the beauty that they brought to the um to the to the film itself was a, a gift that i mean if we'd just been a sunny postcard i mean it was a postcard enough but it gave texture to the movie, which helped enormously. And that interview with Andrews, conducted by Terry Gross, was recorded in 2008 for WHYY National Public Radio.
The Sound of Music was the highest grossing film of 1965 and proved to be one of the biggest hits in the history of 20th Century Fox. As of 2014, it still ranked as the fifth highest grossing film of all time, adjusted for inflation. For her performance as Maria, Andrews won her second Golden Globe Award for Best Actress, Motion Picture, Musical or Comedy, and was also nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actress, though she lost to Julie Christie for Darling. In September 1973, Andrews noted, I saw The Sound of Music again recently and I loved it. Probably it's a more valuable film now than when it first came out, because some of the things it stood for have already disappeared. There's a kind of naive loveliness about it, and love goes by so fast. Love and music and happiness and family, that's what it's all about. I believe in these things. It would be awful not to, wouldn't it? Here now is Andrew singing My Favourite Things from the original motion picture soundtrack for The Sound of Music, with music by Richard Rogers and lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein II. Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favourite things. Cream-coloured ponies and crisp apple strudels, doorbells and sleigh bells and schnitzel with noodles, wild geese that fly with the moon on their wings. These are a few of my favourite things. In white dresses with blue satin sashes Snowflakes that stay on my nose and eyelashes Silver white winters that melt into springs These are a few of my favourite things When the dog bites, when the bee stings When I'm feeling sad I simply remember my favourite things And then I don't feel so Whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. Crisp apple strudels, doorbells and sleigh bells and schnitzel with noodles, wild geese that fly with the moon on their wings. These are a few of my favorite things. With blue satin sashes Snowflakes that stay on my nose and eyelashes Silver white winters that melt into springs These are a few of my favorite things When the dog bites, when the bee stings When I'm feeling sad I simply remember my favorite things And then I don't feel
Andrews' status as a major international star was built on the financial success of two films, Mary Poppins in 1964 and less than a year later, The Sound of Music. After these unprecedented successes, the career of Julie Andrews always lived under the shadow of these two iconic films, and she admitted that she often felt typecast as wholesome, prim and proper, and conservative, due to the lasting impression left from her performances in these films. Leonard Nimoy cannot escape Mr. Spock, so mm-hmm. he's gone back to Mr. Spock. Sean Connery has tried to get away of James Bond. He went back to James Bond. Mm-hmm. Uh, Julie Andrews has tried to get away from the I'm G. I'm not going back to Mary Poppins, right. is that what you're asking? <laughs> well, I was going to maybe say that you've tried to get away very hard from the G-rated Julie. And I've tried this on cab drivers and a number of people say, what do you want me to ask Julie Andrews? And it's not something they want to ask, that they just liked your original characters. And I know you outgrow those characters, but would you ever do those type of characters again, or you just really refuse to do that? I think the answer basically is that I'm an actress, and a good role is a good role. And if a wonderful role came by that required a certain kind of quality, I probably would say yes. Uh, and the same applies to other roles, too. The, the thing that happens is that uh, you get bracketed or you, you become most well-known for the thing that was the most successful. And so if something like The Sound of Music, which happens to have a very wholesome mm-hmm. image, uh, makes you successful, that's what people remember you for. If you think of someone like... Um, Clark Gable, you mostly think of Gone with the Wind, but he did a great body of work that was wonderful also. Um, Also, the other side of it is that I've always tried to do other things that were different, but it ties into that thing of what's most successful is what people most remember. Andrew's there in a 1984 interview with Jimmy Carter. After completing The Sound of Music, Andrew's appeared in an Emmy Award-winning special, The Julie Andrews Show, which featured Gene Kelly as guest. It aired on NBC in November 1965. In 1966, Andrews starred in Hawaii, the highest-grossing film of the year. That same year, she also starred opposite Paul Newman in Torn Curtain, which was directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Andrews' next musical film was 1967's Thoroughly Modern Millie, which Clive Hirshhorn hailed as an irresistible mixture of brashness, charm and nostalgia put together with expertise. Like her first major stage play, Millie had Andrews portraying a young woman who, during the 1920s, finds herself in the midst of a series of madcap adventures when she sets her sights on marrying her wealthy boss. During what Hirshhorn describes as a thoroughly captivating star performance, Andrews sang ditties such as Jimmy and Poor Butterfly. Her portrayal earned her a Golden Globe nomination. Despite her professional successes, Andrews's personal life was less rosy. Her marriage to Tony Walton was on the rocks, and Walton, who once wrote of her as My Heavenly Julie, was complaining bitterly to the media that he had to make an appointment whenever he wished to see his wife. The couple divorced in 1967, during the filming of The Sound of Music. It was not long thereafter that Andrews met director Blake Edwards, responsible for such films as the Pink Panther series and Breakfast at Tiffany's, and who was 13 years Andrews' senior. The couple married in 1969. I met Blake in 1967. I um, 
<laughs> we, we both laugh at this. I passed his car and he passed mine on um, on the cross junction, on the uh, middle island of Sunset Boulevard on Roxbury Drive. Uh, I thought, that's a very interesting looking gentleman, and I presume he must have thought the same about me in terms of being an interesting looking lady. And lo and behold, a couple of days later it happened again and again. And finally, we were waiting for the traffic to uh, clear on either side of this intersection, and he rolled down his window, and I cannot remember which one of us said it, but it was sort of, are you going to where I just came from? And we both realized that being on Roxbury Drive, we'd probably both been to see, or were going to see an analyst. And uh, one of us nodded, I don't know which one asked the question, and not too long after, I received a phone call uh, asking if he could talk to me about a film uh, which was a film that we both did together called Darling Lily. It was a huge flop, and um, uh, it was great fun to make. Um, and shortly after Darling Lily, we, we were married. And that interview for the Academy of Achievement was recorded in 2004. Andrews next appeared in two of Hollywood's most expensive flops. She was, as one writer noted, hopelessly miscast in 1968's Star, a biopic of the British musical legend Gertrude Lawrence. Darling Lily, which co-starred Rock Hudson, marked Andrews' first film together with Edwards. It featured a striptease by Andrews, but proved a box office disaster on its release in 1970, putting a temporary halt to both their Hollywood careers. Darling Lily was Andrews' second consecutive flop, and as a result, her next two screen projects were cancelled, and a mere five years after starring in one of the biggest movie hits of all time, she found herself without any film offers. She worked less frequently in the 1970s, and instead turned to other media, including writing her first children's book, Mandy, under her married name, Julie Edwards, in 1971. This was followed by The Last of the Really Great Wang Doodles in 1974. A few years later, Edwards and Andrews adopted two daughters, Amy in 1974 and Joanna in 1975. Edwards' children from a previous marriage, Jennifer and Jeffrey, were three and five years older than Emma, Andrews' daughter with Tony Walton. Andrews and Edwards remained married for 41 years until his death in 2010. By and large, Edwards' films starring his wife were commercial flops. SOB in 1981 had a scene in which Andrews famously revealed her breasts. That was Andrews' first on-screen nude scene, and even though it got much attention as she poked fun at her squeaky clean image, it failed to restore her to box office favor. Chacha host Johnny Carson famously thanked Andrews for showing us that the hills are still alive. I want to talk about Blake Edwards. Oh, I'd like that. The most charismatic, funny, black humor, uh, sweet, complicated man that I've ever met in my life. Certainly for me, the most attractive guy I've ever met. The movies you made with him, wow. I mean, uh, I wanted to talk about SOB, where (laughs) we saw a bit more of Julie Andrews than usual. I knew I was in safekeeping because it was Blake. It wasn't as if it was a stranger. And, you know, bearing my bosom was part of 
the legitimate role. It wasn't just done for, you know, for being a gimmick. It was actually part of the dramatic arc of the film. Yeah. So it was okay, and he did take good care of me. We had a pretty good innings together. You sure did. Yeah. How did that marriage survive for 41 years in Hollywood? We both had enormous respect for each other, and I think it takes two people to want a marriage to last, and it did last, so I think we both wanted it to. And I'm glad. Yeah, yeah. And I still miss him, my God. It's only two years. Andrew's there in an interview with Alex Cullen from 2013. Blake Edwards's next screen venture, Victor Victoria, was more successful. The 1982 film found Andrew starring in a movie musical for the first time in 12 years, playing a struggling performer, Victoria Grant, who can't get a job and becomes a female impersonator, Victor Grzynski. In many ways, Victor Victoria represented another attempt for Andrews to break from her goody-two-shoes image from Mary Poppins and The Sound of Music. As Leslie Bennett noted in the New York Times, some viewers may find themselves somewhat startled by the sight of Mary Poppins cross-dressing and carousing with transvestites and persons of assorted and ambiguous sexual persuasions in the decadent Paris nightclubs of 1934. The film with a score by Henry Mancini and Frank Wildhorn, blended musical comedy with social commentary and featured some wonderful musical numbers, especially Le Jazz Hot. About 20 years ago, way down in New A group of fellas found a new kind of music And they decided to call it jazz No other sound has what this music has Before they knew it, it was whizzing round the world the world was ready for a blue kind of music And now they play it from Steamboat Springs to La Paz Jazz! Ha! 
winner. Her performance as the gender-bending protagonist earned Andrews a Golden Globe Award for Best Actress, Motion Picture, Musical or Comedy, as well as a nomination for the 1982 Academy Award for Best Actress, her third Oscar nomination. Andrews next participated in a studio cast recording of Rodgers and Hammerstein's The King and I. The recording made the British charts and earned a Grammy Award nomination for Best Musical Show Album. Here is Getting to Know You from The King and I, with music by Richard Rogers and lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein II. It's a very ancient saying, but a true and honest thought, that if you become a teacher, by your pupils you'll be taught. As a teacher I've been learning You'll forgive me if I boast And I've now become an expert On the subject I like most Getting to know you Getting to know you Getting to know all about you Getting to like you, getting to hope you like me. Getting to know you, putting it my way but nicely. You are precisely my cup of tea. Getting to know you, getting to feel free and easy. When I am with you, getting to know what to say. Haven't you noticed, suddenly I'm bright and breezy. Because of all the beautiful and new things I'm learning about you day by day. Getting to know you, getting to know all about you, getting to like you, getting to hope you like me, getting to know you, putting it my way but nicely, you are precisely my cup of tea. 
Andrews undertook another concert tour, then surprised fans by agreeing to appear in a theatrical production for the first time in more than 30 years, joining the ensemble cast of the off-Broadway musical review Putting It Together, an anthology of Stephen Sondheim's songs which ran at the Manhattan Theatre Club for 59 performances starting on April 1, 1993. In 1994, Andrews recorded two new albums of show tunes for Phillips. The first, The Music of Richard Rogers, appeared in October 1994. The second, Here I'll Stay, The Words of Alan J. Lerner, was held for release until October 1996. Putting it together turned out to be a dry run for a more ambitious return to the stage for Andrews. Because of the on-screen success of Victor Victoria, a stage adaptation of the film was developed, and, on October 25, 1995, Andrews opened on Broadway at the Marquis Theatre in the stage adaptation of Victor Victoria. Here is Andrews in an interview with Alec Baldwin, recorded in 2015 for WNYC New York Public Radio. Whose idea was it? Many years later, to take it to Broadway, and when you took that show to Broadway, you were you're 60. talking about Victor Victoria. Victor Victoria on mm, stage. Mm. Whose idea was that? Blake's. I mean, he he'd make anything happen. He had that magic that said. How did you feel about playing that part eight times? <laughs> terrified. A week? Uh, well, more than anything, I remember driving out of the city for um, a night. We looked back at New York City, and I said, Blake, do you realize with all those that skyline? We're hoping that what we're doing is going to capture that city. He said, I know, it's, it's terrifying, isn't it? And I said, but yes, it, it but is. But it did. It did. But the day that we opened, I began to get so nervous and so frightened. And I blinked and got quite tearful in the morning. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm really very scared about tonight. And he looked at me as if I was an idiot. And he said, well, did you expect to feel any other way, darling? And I thought... Well, no, I guess not. And he suddenly made it all all right, you know. Andrews' star turned in Victor Victoria at the age of 60, after an absence from the stage of more than 35 years, was admirable. While her personal notices were positive, the show received generally negative reviews. When the Tony nominations were announced, Andrews was the only Tony Award nominee for the production. She declined the nomination, saying that she could not accept because she felt that the entire production was snubbed. Voters respected her decision, and she did not win the award. She remained in the show until June 1, 1997, and it closed two months later after 738 performances. The year and a half of stage work had taken its toll on the 61-year-old. During its final stages, she had missed more than 30 performances, suffering from vocal problems. The week after leaving Victor Victoria, Andrews checked into Manhattan's Mount Sinai Medical Center, where doctors operated to remove non-cancerous nodules on one of her vocal cords. What was meant to be a rather routine operation resulted in Andrews not being able to hold a note. At the end of 1998, her husband Blake Edwards said, I don't think she'll sing again. It's an absolute tragedy. She was told that she'd be okay in six weeks, that the voice would actually be better. It's over a year now, and if you heard it, you would weep. Andrews herself admitted, The thing with the voice was very devastating. 
is very devastating. It has been my stock in trade, something I could always go back to. And now I'm asking, who am I? What do I do? Well, let's get to the... To, to the, the nitty-gritty. To yeah. the nitty-gritty. In June of 1997, you had throat surgery to correct what was described as a non-cancerous throat condition. Yes? Yes. This was not supposed to be a serious operation. Usually it is not, as I understand it. It's just over 19 months ago I went in for a routine procedure that I was told would not be threatening to my vocal cords. And, uh, and since then, as you know and as everybody's been talking about, I've just been unable to sing. That's the big question. Will Julie Andrews be able to sing again? Well, I can only say I hope so. I have to be optimistic. I think to some degree I'm in a form of denial about it because, because to not sing with an orchestra, to not be able to communicate through my voice, which I've done all my life, and not to be able to phrase lyrics and give people that kind of joy, uh, I think I would be totally devastated. So I am in some kind of denial. You were told this would be routine, that you'd come out and your voice would be fine. Yeah, that given a certain recuperative time, uh, and it certainly wasn't two years, I, I would be singing just as well or better than ever. And now you can't sing at all? No. It's not just that you can't hit the high notes. You can't sing. No, I simply can't uh, do a song for you. Your throat problems became international news when your husband, who was very frank, like Edwards was quoted as saying of your voice, if you heard it, you would weep. I don't think she'll sing again. It's an absolute tragedy. Does that sum it up? Yeah, it just about sums it up. Yeah, it is a tragedy. Uh, thank God I wasn't younger. But, uh, I mean, can, at least I've had a wonderful career. But, but I'm still, as I say, still hoping that uh, it, this will reverse itself. But it's been a long time now. It's nearly four months short of two years. The tabloid said that you were furious with your husband for going public about your voice, for saying how bad it was. Were you angry with him? You know, I guess because I'm private, a very private person, and Blake is completely the opposite, and he just says what he feels. And in fact, uh, he was doing an interview about some totally unrelated thing, and he thought that the interview was over, and the lady said, how's your wife? And he said, you know, she's not good in terms of her voice and of course that's what was quoted so it, but he he, was, they snuck up on him a bit but he was telling the truth he was telling the truth yes indeed he was and what do the the doctors who are seeing you now say they say that they don't hold out much hope but that i should continue practicing you know i think of of um, frank sinatra or or Tony Bennett. Yes. I mean, Sinatra, from the time he was, what, 60s to 80s... Uh, just matured you know, just, and matured. Yeah, matured and sang, sang, yeah. and, and more and more money. And, and Ella. Tony Bennett. Yeah. So it isn't as if... And Lena. And Lena Horne. A wonderful example. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you would, I assume, have been able to sing for many more years had you wanted to. Oh, sure. I mean, uh, one's voice always warms and sometimes thickens a little as you get older. But it doesn't stop you from singing or the ability to sing, so you transpose a key or something like that, but it doesn't stop you from being able to sing. Are you thinking of suing? 
it, believe me, it's under consideration. And obviously right now it's in the hands of lawyers and we'll make some decisions. Have you had to abandon any projects now? I mean, were there things that were coming oh, up? Oh, yes, a lot. Yes, a lot. And, well... Singing I, I, roles. Singing roles, yes. Not just roles, but tours and albums and things like that. Um, it's probably better I don't talk about it. Julie, as we talk, your voice sounds hoarse. Is that part of this condition? Yes. So it's not just the singing? No, no, it is the speaking as well. Speaking yeah. as well. Yeah. You can act in films. You don't have to project in films. Right. But what if you want to go on the stage where you do have to project? Mm -hmm. Is that part of your voice affected? I don't know. Um, that remains to be seen. So you don't know if you can even go on a stage... Eight times a week. Uh, I would be extremely worried. Julie, if you can't sing anymore, mm -hmm. how will it change your life? God, you'll have to ask me that again another time. Right now, as I said, I simply cannot contemplate it. I don't want to say that I never can. Um, so ask me again in a couple of years, okay? Andrew's there in an emotional interview with Barbara Walters, recorded in 1999. So devastating was the loss of her voice that Andrew's entered the Sierra Tucson Rehabilitation Clinic in Arizona, where she received the kind of grief counselling usually reserved for the bereaved. In December 1999, she filed a malpractice suit against Mount Sinai and the doctors that had operated on her vocal cords, claiming that she had been precluded from practicing her profession as a musical performer and reportedly asking for compensation for loss of earnings. She had not been warned of irreversible loss of vocal quality, claimed the lawsuit, which also accused the doctors of operating on both sides of her vocal cords when the right side had not required it. In August the following year, an undisclosed out-of-court settlement was reached, thought to be up to £20 million. Although the loss of her voice may have been the most trying obstacle of her career, Andrews did not retire. If anything, she became more active. For a while, I was in total denial, she noted, but then I had to do something. That something was to pen dozens of books, including co-authoring Dumpy the Dump Truck and the Very Fairy Princess children's series with her daughter, Emma Walton Hamilton. What I say in The Sound of Music is true, noted Andrews. A door closes and a window opens. Had I not lost my singing voice, I would never have written this number of books. I would never have discovered that pleasure, she said. I thought at the time of my surgery, my voice was what I am, recalls Andrews, but it seems it's not all that I am. In 2000, Andrews was made a Dame of the British Empire and in 2001 was awarded with a Kennedy Centre honour. In August 2001, she co-starred as Queen Clarice Rinaldi in Disney's The Princess Diaries, which grossed over $165 million worldwide and restored her to the status of a commercially successful star for the first time in 20 years. In 2004, Andrews voiced the Queen in the animated feature Shrek 2, a massive hit that neared $1 billion in worldwide film rentals within a year of release. She also reprised her role in The Princess Diaries 2, Royal Engagement, in which she at least sang again alongside young actress-singer Raven in the song Your Crowning Glory, 
a song restricted to what Andrews called her five bass notes, being careful not to push her voice beyond its limits. The film's musical supervisor, Dawn Soller, said at the time, She's such a professional. She nailed the song on the first take, adding that she saw members of the film crew with tears in their eyes. As she approached 70 years of age, Andrews added yet another facet to her career, that of stage director. She directed a well-received production of The Boyfriend at the Goodspeed Opera House in East Haddam, Connecticut. The show ran from July 8th to September 18th, 2005, followed by a national tour. She also directed a musical theatre adaptation of another of her books, The Great American Mousical. Hopefully, I brought people a certain joy. That will be a wonderful legacy, Julie Andrews noted in 1965. If only she knew then how much joy she would go on to bring millions through her stage and screen appearances, especially Mary Poppins and The Sound of Music. Just one of these two major movie musical roles would have been enough to assure Andrews' legendary status in cinematic history. As one writer noted, she embodies grace, charm, kindness and regal elegance in the eyes of the public. She's their childhood secret treasure. Turning 80 years of age on October 1st of this year, may Julie Andrews' star continue to shine brightly and may she continue to bring joy as only she can to her legions of fans around the world for many more years. Well, that's it for another edition of Great Interpreters Goes Broadway. Next week, our leading lady is Broadway baby and leading interpreter of the music of Stephen Sondheim, Bernadette Peters. I hope you'll join me again next Friday, same time here on Fine Music Radio. A reminder too that you can listen again to tonight's program from my website on and off the record, www.onandofftherecord.com. You can also subscribe to the On and Off the Record podcast on iTunes. And if you have any comments, suggestions or questions, you can reach me via email at adrian at onandofftherecord.com. The final recording that I'd like to play to you this evening is the beautiful Feed the Birds from Mary Poppins, with music and lyrics by Richard and Robert Sherman. From me, Adrian Fuchs, have a great weekend. Till next week, good night. Early each day to the steps of St. Paul's The little old bird woman comes In her own special way to the people she calls full of crumbs come feed the little birds show them you care and you'll be glad if you do their young ones are hungry their nests are so bare all it takes is tuppence from you a bag tuppence 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 a bag feed the birds 
That's what she cries While overhead Her birds fill the skies All around the cathedral The saints and apostles Look down as she sells her wares Although you can't see She's cool. 